This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangler, which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair's too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Yeah, okay. All right, so welcome to our first YouTube video podcast episode. Um, this is also the first episode that I'm doing with someone in person. Every single co-hosted episode has been virtual for obvious reasons. But this episode is with my husband, um, and it's the urology episode. Initially, we were going to do one urology episode and talk about um, like baby and children or pediatric urology stuff and adult stuff. But when we were making the outline, we decided there was too many things to cover for each. So we're going to break it into two episodes. So this is the pediatric episode. Um, So yeah, I also just wanted to point out that I got my hair done yesterday, and so moving forward in the episodes, my hair will probably never look like this again. Um, so enjoy it while you can. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, you guys know who my co-host is today. It is my husband. He is a urologist. Not a neurologist. Not a neurologist, a urologist. <clears throat> I call him a pee-pee doctor, even though he does other things as well, like kidneys and such. Um, so yeah, if you want to know details about how we met, like our marriage, things like that, listen to previous episodes and I will link them in the episode notes, uh, for you guys, just if you're curious. Um, so yeah, we wanted to put in a little bit of a disclaimer before we get into this information. Obviously this is like general, Uh, medical information. It's not meant to be like specific advice for you or recommendations. And of course, we urge people to go see their own physician if um, you have any issues going on. Um, So yeah, that is our disclaimer. I will put a more clear one in the episode notes as well, uh, just to be clear. So the first question that I have for you is... Maybe some people are wondering what a urologist is. So what kinds of things do you treat? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, urology is one of those specialties where if you haven't seen a urologist, you probably don't know a lot about what we do or the kind of things that we treat. Um, to be honest, when I, when I was a, a medical student, I didn't even know what urology was until, you know, about six months in med school. Uh, when a friend of mine decided that he was going to do an elective, and I was like, "Oh, maybe I'll I'll try that as well." 
<clears throat> so we basically are surgeons. Um, we operate on the urinary tract, uh, and we also do a lot of male reproductive um, surgery and and care. Um, but there's a lot of it's sort of a balance. There, we treat a lot of things medically, uh, but at the same time, the brunt of our our practice uh, practices are, are typically uh, surgical. And it really depends on what you do. I mean, as a general urologist, I, I see uh, roughly 50-50 men and women, maybe a little bit more men uh, than women. But uh, if you're a subspecialist, you may, that, that could be skewed quite a bit. Um, but uh, generally, that's sort of the breakdown. Uh, we treat everything from kidney stones to bladder dysfunction, incontinence, uh, and then also cancers of the urinary tract. So um, anywhere from kidney cancers, adrenal cancers, uh, bladder, prostate, uh, testicular cancers, penile cancers, um, just very, it's a very broad, uh, uh, very broad specialty. All right. So <laughs> what are the most common issues that you would say you see in your practice? I'm going to say just from living with you that it's kidney stones. Am yeah. I right? I see a lot of kidney stones. I treat a lot of kidney stones, but uh, it really depends on where you work. I, I mean, certain areas, you're not going to get the same number of stones. But mm. I mean, a lot of the referrals that I get are either for stones, people who have blood in their urine to any degree, incontinence issues, uh, and cancers uh, for the most part. Um, and when it comes to bladder issues, you know, men and women with bladder problems uh, for, for assessment. All right. So we're going to get into the good stuff. So a while ago, I had put out on my Instagram stories um, a question box for you guys to ask questions that you may have for my husband um, about urology, obviously. Um, and so the biggest thing that people wanted to know about with regard to children um, was circumcision. So... The first question I have for you is, and some people may not even know this, but it's something that's so common, but we may not know exactly what is happening when someone goes in for a circumcision. Like, what are they actually doing to the penis? Yeah. So, I mean, every man is born with a foreskin. So that's sort of an extension of the skin from the, the shaft of the penis that covers the, the glands or the head of the penis. And essentially what we're doing for a circumcision is just removing that portion of it. So if you think of it like a turtleneck, we're removing the turtleneck portion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and there's different ways of doing it depending on when when you're doing the circumcision, whether it's an infant or even adults uh, you know, sometimes need circumcisions. Um, so it really depends. The, the method varies depending on what you're doing. So what would the different methods be? So, I mean, for kids, uh, you're you're looking at basically either – a freehand sort of scalpel technique, which is you know what we use for adults as well, uh, but there are other sort of more more device oriented uh, techniques for for kids. Uh, there's a clamp method, and there's also something called a plastibel, uh, which are just different ways of removing the foreskin. And is one more? I feel like most people would use the scalpel. Uh, honestly, for for pediatrics, the majority of them are other techniques. Um, so plastibel or the something called a gomco clamp, that that one is not used as much these days. Uh, but uh, the freehand technique is not used as often for kids, at least in my experience. Hmm. 
All right. And so is there any reason why someone would prefer one method over the other? In terms of who's doing it or the... Uh, yeah, like uh, like if, if we were going to get our child circumcised, would you have a preference for one of those methods? Well, it really depends on who who's doing it and their, and their comfort. Okay. I mean, as, as a urologist, I would probably do a scalpel technique because I'm just more comfortable with that. A lot of um, <clears throat> circumcisions for infants are done by family doctors and some places gynecologists do them, mm-hmm. pediatricians, and they may not be as comfortable when it comes to, you know, actually using a scalpel and suture and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so last night we, we knew we were going to be talking about circumcisions today. So we were kind of looking up the history of circumcision and why it is even a thing. I know there's a really good documentary on Netflix about circumcisions. We haven't watched it yet, but I've been meaning to watch it. Um, So what... I watched part of it. Oh, you did? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, he's seen (laughs) part of it. But so what is the, like, the history? Why did people ever start doing circumcisions? I'm going to move this. Well, I mean, I'm not really a surgical historian, but... uh, (laughs) I, just in, in reading, I mean, it's it's there's numerous reasons that have been sort of you know postulated as to why people are people were doing it, um, whether that's for you know ease of cleaning, um, whether that was to you know have some control over sort of uh, uh, masturbation and that sort of thing. There's there's lots of lots of different reasons. Um, you know, obviously there are religious reasons for it. Uh, the vast majority of people who are Jewish or are Muslim are circumcised uh, for religious reasons. Uh, and even in parts, parts of the world, like even South Africa, <clears throat> certain groups there do it in the teens, like 13, 12, 13, um, as sort of like a rite of passage kind of thing. So I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Okay. So the biggest question that people had, is there actually any medical benefit to circumcision? So yeah. what, like, I know physicians work from guidelines. So in Canada, we have like the Canadian Urology Association guidelines. And then in the States, you, because I know a lot of listeners are in the States as well. So they would have a different set of guidelines, but do they actually differ? Like, well, in terms of like the general, the general consensus, at least in North America, mm-hmm. the there's there's a consensus that there's no real medical necessity for circumcision. I mean, there are certain reasons why you would want to circumcise your child, um, but typically that's not just a newborn, right? I mean, you're if you're circumcising for a medical reason, it's typically because something has come up and there's there's a necessity for it. Okay. Um, but I mean, in kids who have, you know, potentially, um, recurrent urinary tract infections in the first year of life that can reduce the risk of urinary tract infection. Um, there's also some evidence that's, that's been out there in certain studies, mainly in, um, uh, Southern Africa where there's high rates of HIV, HPV, there's some evidence to show that uh, circumcision reduces the risk of contracting or even transmitting those uh, viruses. Um, so those are, you know, some of the reasons for it. Um, in in sort of like a, you know, why would I get my child circumcised right up from the get-go? Okay, yeah. so I think a lot of people, uh, the, the thought is that getting a circumcision or getting your child circumcised will reduce the incidence of 
them getting infections. And I'm assuming that would mean urinary tract infections or are there other infections that can occur? And does circumcision actually reduce the the rate of infection? So definitely can reduce the risk of urinary tract infections for kids. Uh, But I wouldn't look at it as something where I'm going to get it because my kid's going to get infections. There's no there's no specific reason to undergo a surgical procedure just for prevention of that because you don't really know what's going to happen. Right. I mean, the biggest thing is trying to, you know, if if your child does develop some infections in the first year of life, then maybe considering a circumcision in those situations would be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, but as a neonatal, so in the first, you know, first month of life, basically, um, would you, should you get a circumcision for medical reasons? There's not really a lot of evidence to support that. Okay. So that was kind of one of the questions was what are some reasons that it should be done? So mm-hmm. that you just kind of explained. So if there's recurring infections, yep. that might be something that you want to look at. Um, so are there any other pros? to having it done from a from a prevention standpoint or just I like mean, in general like yeah i mean i think from a medical standpoint those would be the only real reasons right i mean certainly there are other reasons why we would want we would need to do circumcision where you know if like a child has developed a lot of scarring around at the tip of the foreskin can't pee properly because of that mm-hmm. or is having issues with something called balanopostitis or balanitis where there's inflammation of the inner foreskin or the head of the penis at times. Um, those are reasons to consider a circumcision. Um, in those if situations. those things are recurring? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so then, okay, so we'll get into possible complications that can occur. And also, I guess, like cons, I guess that's kind of the same thing. So, yeah. Cons to having a circumcision. I'm sure you've seen in your practice um, complications arise, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, the, the I, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest that anyone think of circumcision as a you know minor procedure. It's not like getting your ears pierced. It's a it is a surgical procedure. There can be uh, complications that arise from that, <clears throat> whether it's bleeding, um, you know, infections from the surgery. Um, you know, you can get uh, issues where you know even part of the penis is amputated or cut off during a procedure. Um, you can get necrosis of the penis at, and in certain situations. Um, you can also get adhesions that form when things are healing, which oftentimes need procedures in the future to, to deal with. Um, the other thing is uh, uh, stenosis or tightness of the end of the urethra. We call that meatal stenosis, which typically for kids who are uncircumcised, it's not an issue. <clears throat> for, but for kids who are circumcised, the end of the penis is kind of rubbing on the inside of the diaper all the time. Mm. And that causes a bit of inflammation and that can cause the opening to kind of scar down and, and close up. And that can sometimes have implications when they're when they're trying to pee. Um, so those are, you know, all potential side effects or complications. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. 
Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. It is 2024. As busy parents, it's hard to completely overhaul our lives, but what we can do is make small changes that will make our lives easier. And that is where Little Spoon comes in. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime. Little Spoon offers baby blends, biteables, and plates. So baby blends is fresh, organic baby food. They have single ingredients, but also multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size, which promotes self-feeding. And of course, all the Biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Okay, I have a quick question and this is not on the outline, but I'm just curious... When people go in to have their, let's say, newborn baby or young, you know, month old, whatever, baby circumcised, are they told all these things that you just said? I would hope so. Uh, I mean, you know, everyone has their own spiel when it comes to procedures like this or any procedure in general. You know, you want to highlight the most important or, you know, typical complications, you know, things like an injury to the penis or, or you know, severe things like that are very rare. Uh, but certainly it's something that I would, I would talk to people about. Um, I, so that, I mean, that's, that's the challenge, right? I mean, it's, it's really asking the questions and making sure that you're comfortable with people's answers when, when you're going to, you know, consider something like that. Yeah. And, but that's why I love 
that we're doing this podcast because like uh, like our son is not circumcised but i'm just thinking if i went into a doctor's office and they were like oh by the way there's not really any like medical benefit to doing this when while he's like a newborn you know like you were saying maybe later on if he gets recurring infections you might want to think about it yeah. yada 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 i can't imagine them being like there's no medical benefit but here's all the complications that could occur and things that could arise and then being like oh yeah let's do it <laughs> like so i think this is good information because i'm just thinking maybe like i'm just wondering if it's common for physicians to tell people all the potential complications well, you should so, be. I mean, that, yeah, that's, part of, <clears throat> that's part of the whole informed consent procedure. Right? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes I find with informed consent and for me, like you go in, you're going to have something done and it's like, you know, they just kind of like, it's just like, oh, here's what could occur. But it's not really like the way you just described it was yeah. more like you know, I could understand how that would happen. Like it would rub against the diaper and then you're going to have this problem and this problem. But I, I feel like for the most part, when people are told about potential complications, it's kind of like just glazed over. And people yeah. like on the other end are not well, I, I think, so much like... I think the issue is, you know, you want to... You don't want people to be worried about this because obviously yeah. these complications and things are... are relatively rare like they're not a high frequency event uh, but at the end of the day if you have something happen and then you need more procedures down the road to fix it then you're going to be upset that you weren't told about it yeah right okay so you explained a little bit why someone would have to be circumcised later on so like the recurring infections mm -hmm. but are there reasons why someone would have to be circumcised like really later on you know, like a teenager yeah. or something? And so what would that be? So, I mean, in general, at least in my practice, the main reason for it is if they start to have something called phimosis or, very, or scarring and, and, and tightness at the end of the foreskin where they can't pull it back, they can't expose the head of the penis. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Some people have, you know, partial exposure, but they can't get it all the way over the head of the penis. And, you know, you get in, you get issues with bleeding and tearing, um, you know, with, with erections, with intercourse. Those are all reasons to do it. Um, and um, so th those are the typical indications as, you know, an adolescent in, the, in patients in their 20s and, and beyond. Okay. Yeah. This is just a fun fact that I wanted to share that we found when we were Googling stuff last night. So <laughs> one third of the world's males are circumcised so it's one third so that's just a piece of information for you so next up is and there was a lot of this question as well so how to properly clean a penis and it sounds so ridiculous but to be honest i would not know like i usually let him do that with milo and like check everything and make sure everything's good but, you know, if I was on my own, I would have the exact same question because I didn't know myself. Like, are we supposed to pull the foreskin back to clean? Like, how often are you supposed to do it? Um, especially if they're uncircumcised. Uh, so, yes, what if, if someone if you're talking to parents right now that have young <laughs> kids. So go for it. So I think the biggest thing I would tell parents who, who are concerned about this is not to force things back. 
you know, over time, as your your little guy gets bigger, the penis grows, they get more erections, the foreskin is going to come back. You know, there's a small percentage of kids where it doesn't. And in those situations, you may have to consider getting a circumcision down the road if it's if it's not pulling back and they're having difficulties with peeing and, and that sort of thing. But the biggest thing I would suggest is not not forcing it back. You can pull it back a little bit, expose as much as you can. But anytime you're forcing and you feel like there's some there's there's some resistance, then that's probably the, the time to stop uh, and just clean what you can. Right. You may have some some sort of smegma buildup underneath the foreskin. That's sort of the white sort of dead skin cells that kind of build up underneath there. Um, but again, that's normal. I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that. <clears throat> I wouldn't you know obsess over that. And certainly, the worst thing you can do is to pull it back forcefully, and then you cause tearing. Because then when that happens, you can it can lead to bleeding, which is usually pretty minor. But it can lead to scarring. And when scarring happens, that causes things to, to be even worse. So it kind of creates this vicious cycle that you're constantly trying to pull it back and it's getting harder, but you're doing it more. And then that can sometimes lead to issues where you have to you know, consider a treatment that's surgical. Wow. Yeah. Which is like, it's crazy that we have babies. Nobody knows this information, by the way. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, like I feel the exact same way. Like nobody knows this and nobody is told this information, which drives me crazy. Like you have so many family doctor visits when you go yeah. with your newborn, you know, in that first week or whatever, for the first year of their life, you're constantly in and out. Nobody is like, how are you cleaning their penis? <laughs> Because I know there's people out it's there. Not, I mean, that's probably have not been, the first thing on their mind. I know, but like, that's yeah. important too. Because everybody, yeah. like, that question came up so often. And I know one, one woman had messaged me saying that she was, like, she found every time she was trying to pull the foreskin back or clean the penis, like, her son seemed super uncomfortable. And yeah. so that's probably why she was probably like trying yeah. to force it back. So you don't, you don't want to do that, right? I mean, obviously if there's <gasps> there, if you're going to do it, you should do it when they're in the tub because the skin's going to be more lubricated. Uh, you can pull it back a little bit, but obviously if there's any sign that they're uncomfortable, then that's a, obviously a time to stop. Right? Okay. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really obsess over getting, getting underneath there or exposing the head of the for, head of the penis. Uh, it's uh, it'll happen in time, uh, but like I said, the worst thing you can do is pull it back, full force it back, because that that can often lead to more problems. Okay, and so for as kids get older, is it the same kind of thing? Like you're just teaching them to pull it back to clean, like when they're yeah. in the shower or in the bathtub. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and also when they're peeing, you want to you know older kids who are who are potty trained. Um, or maybe not when they're starting potty training, but obviously when they're when they're comfortable with it, just getting them to sort of pull it back a little bit so that they're peeing directly into the the toilet rather than peeing into the foreskin because that can cause this sort of ballooning of the foreskin and that kind of creates kind of a chemical irritation from the acidity of the urine inside the foreskin and on the head of the penis, and that can sometimes create pain, you know, swelling, discomfort. Um, and, uh, to be honest, I get a lot of referrals like that from the emergency department where, you know, the kid came in with a, you know, potential infection, but it was really just, you know, they were kind of peeing into the foreskin and, and irritating things. 
So just pulling back enough so that they pee directly in the toilet bowl would be a reasonable you know, suggestion to do. Next topic is UTIs in children and in babies. So we had a conversation last night about this as we were going through the outline and something that I thought was important to share was the part about like under one years old and then over one years old. So can you explain that? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at UTIs as being a common or normal thing for kids. Uh, certainly if you're if your child is having UTIs especially if they're having fevers with them that's something that I think needs to be investigated by your family doctor uh, or you know if there's an abnormality then sending you to a urologist um, but uh, you know before one year one year of age typically it's it's more boys than girls and then there's sort of a catch-up after that and then girls sort of take take over um, the main reason in, in kids, uh, rather boys under the age of one, is because of the foreskin. So it has an impact on, on being able to empty the bladder properly, and sometimes that can create infections. Um, but certainly after the age of one, that's, uh, it's more girls, for sure. Okay. And what should people... Because, you know, the problem all the time is that babies and toddlers, like, they can't talk or explain yeah. what's going on. Yeah. So... What do people look for mm-hmm. for UTIs? Well, I mean, obviously looking at the urine, like in the diaper, if there's any signs of blood or anything like that, that's a reason to look into things a bit more in terms of investigations. Uh, but the biggest thing, and, and, you know, we experienced this with Milo when he was, I think, nine months or 10 months old, you know, any sort of unexplained fever where they don't really have any other symptoms or not, there's no runny nose, there's no cough, there's... You know, they're just kind of lethargic and they have a fever um, or irritable and they have a fever. Those are reasons to, you know, potentially get their urine checked to see if they have an infection. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, a febrile infant. So a child under one year of age with a fever, um, that typically should be seen pretty urgently to rule out anything dangerous. I mean, not just UTIs, but other infections. Right? Okay. Um, and so... Is there any way to prevent them or things that people can do specifically, whether it's like with little, like boys and girls to prevent UTIs? Yeah. I mean, the challenge with infants is that you there's not much you can do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, it's really just you know, treating them as they come. Uh, but certainly if, if they do, for infants, if they do develop an infection, then getting a workup. Um, so you want to make sure that there's nothing abnormal in terms of the anatomy, especially for kids who are under one, right? Uh, ultrasounds, that sort of thing, making sure there's no structural abnormality. Uh, for older kids, uh, and especially kids who are sort of eating solid foods and uh, so toddlers and above, you know, making sure that they're getting a lot of good fluid intake, water specifically, making sure that their urine is high volume and dilute that can prevent urinary tract infections. Um, the other thing is addressing any issues with constipation because the you know constipation can cer- certainly affect how well they're emptying their bladder. If they're not emptying efficiently, that can have an impact uh, on sort of creating a stagnant pool of urine uh, that, that can have... Um, predispose them rather to having infections. Okay. And let's just get this out because people (laughs) ask this. What is the deal with cranberry juice and UTIs? (laughs) So there's a specific ingredient or not specific ingredient, but specific molecule in the cranberry juice and the cranberry 
that can help prevent bacterial bacterial adhesion to the wall of the bladder. Um, the name of it escapes me right now, but uh, that that's sort of where the um, the the idea behind cranberry juice comes in. <clears throat> the only problem with cranberry juice is that you can't drink enough cranberry juice necessarily to prevent all urinary tract infections or have a big impact on it. There are other there are supplements out there which are sort of the um, the specific ingredient that has been isolated um, that can give you more protection. Uh, but yeah, it's just prophylaxis. Like it, it doesn't. It's not necessarily going to completely stop your risk of infections, but it, it's just something to do to prevent it, right? Gotcha. Okay. Next topic is bedwetting. So I, you know, before even becoming a mom, you always hear about kids having issues with wetting the bed. Um, it's not something that we've, you know, dealt with yet because Milo is still in diapers. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. <laughs> well. He pees through his diaper. <laughs> Only if he pees through his diaper. <laughs> he used to do that consistently. That is true. Yeah. Oh, God, I forgot. Yeah. But anyways, I mean when they're like potty trained. So, okay, so bedwetting, how common is it? Like from what you know or what you see in your practice? Like is it something that's common or is it not common? I think the prevalence is a a challenging thing to determine because they're not everyone seeks attention for it. People just think, you know, kids are going to grow out of it. And typically that is what happens. Uh, You know, obviously there's certain... There's a certain number of people who are concerned about it at various ages and, and seek attention for it. Uh, but to really, you know, give you a true number on the prevalence, it's, it's a challenging thing to, to do. Okay. I don't think anyone can answer that. So in your practice, do you see lots of bedwetting? Like- I, I honestly don't do a lot of that. Okay. The challenge with that is, you know, just the, the rationale behind or the reasoning behind bedwetting. There's not a lot you can do from a... From like as a doctor a specialist point of view to really address it okay right uh but we do certainly do a lot of teaching for family doctors pediatricians get teaching in this uh, in terms of how to address it um for their patients um but it's really more of a supportive role it's not not much to do okay so can you talk a little bit about the like when the bedwetting starts. So because there's yeah. a difference between like it's a continuation from potty training versus like it yeah. it happened out of the blue. So, I mean, the technical term for bedwetting is, is called nocturnal enuresis. And so there's two sort of, there's two categories. So there's primary where a child has not ever gotten any control uh, or there's secondary where they've had control usually for a period of months or years and then it's come about again. The secondary issues are probably more concerning and more of a reason to seek further investigation to look for any sort of underlying causes than primary. Primary is common. I mean, there's a there's a lot of variation as to when control happens. And right? it's specifically control overnight, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. because kids may have control throughout the day, but then overnight yeah. they all of a sudden so, don't have it. I mean, there's there's... Depending on who you talk to, everyone so everyone has their own theories as, as to why kids wet the bed. Um, but generally, and I think it's more of a broadly um, broadly accepted point of view, is that it, it's mainly an issue with um, 
you know, nerve control, so the, the brain controlling the, the bladder reflex, that really hasn't developed enough yet. Um, and also hormonal control. So there's a hormone that your pituitary gland produces called ADH or antidiuretic hormone. Uh, and that there's a burst of that before typically in the evening. And that prevents um, sort of excess urine production overnight. And if that sort of access hasn't been evolved yet or, or developed enough, that can lead to kids producing urine overnight or excess urine overnight, and then not having the, the brain control over their reflexes to, to cause them to, to be able to hold it, right? Um, so they, that's why they leak. I mean, there are other, there are other, um, other thoughts or theories out there as to you know, impacts on constipation and that sort of thing. But generally, those are the, the reasons. Okay. So if if parents are dealing with the secondary <clears throat> kind of bedwetting, yeah. then it's worthwhile to go and see your physician yeah. just to rule out other things that could be happening. Exactly. So anytime, anytime a child has had any issues with, or has achieved continence, so overnight or during the day, and then for whatever reason they lose it after whole, having that for you know a consistent period of time that's definitely a reason to go get checked out okay. um and by getting checked out i don't mean looking for something dangerous but you know looking for things that could be bringing it out so constipation or, or other things like that i mean certainly there are significant issues which can can present that way uh, you know, spinal cord abnormalities, brain abnormalities, but those are exceedingly rare. Uh, but it is something to, to make sure you get checked out if they've gained control, had it for a while, and then for some reason lost it. Okay. And you had mentioned last night to me that it, there's a genetic component, com, component <laughs> to bedwetting. Yeah. So, yeah. If, so it's something that can run in families. Yeah. I mean, there's there's been no real gene isolated or specific sort of link, but certainly, you know, kids of parents who had issues with bedwetting typically are, are have issues as well, okay. um, or just take longer to gain control. Right. And something that I think we would want people to know is that it is something that typically kids grow out of. Of course, our dogs. Like, of course. I let them stay up for this podcast. Okay. Go in your house. Go in your house. Go in your house, Muffin. Okay, so can you just talk about that part? I'll put them away. About, like, that it typically goes away. And then <laughs> um, potential causes of it. Like, go for that. So, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest... <laughs> this was an unplanned break here. Um, the, the biggest thing to know is that over time they're going to get control and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't overemphasize you know accidents and things like that um which which can make the problem even worse right you don't want to create uh, a psychological component to it that's unnecessary um when uh, when your child's not getting control overnight um the biggest thing to do in terms of management um is one containment so things like pull-ups and that can can be helpful so at least you know they're they're containing the leakage 
other things you can do there they sell these bedwetting alarms and there's i think there's a lot of different companies that make them they kind of fit on the bed and if there's any moisture that's detected they sound an alarm and they they wake the child up and they can hopefully get to the toilet to to finish emptying their bladder uh but it's more of a, a retraining kind of kind of issue and for me i i worry about kids struggling with bedwetting and then the parents almost like making it seem like it's their fault or you know like we don't that it's not their fault like as you explained it could be something that is just not developed yet um so I think that's important to point out like I can just see parents getting frustrated over something like that um so yeah yeah I mean you don't you definitely don't want to make it a psychological make a psychological component out of it because yeah. they're i'm sure they're already embarrassed so. yeah totally um so next thing you were going to talk about just a little bit was undescended testicles yeah. so i mean that's another thing that we get referrals for a lot as urologists um certainly as a general urologist i don't get this as much but pediatric urologists do uh understanding testicles basically are testicles that are not in the scrotum they could be anywhere above the scrotum or even in the abdomen or absent uh and certainly usually this is something that is identified very early in life usually on the newborn exam that is one thing that they're definitely examining for uh, is to make sure that the testicles are are in the scrotum or at least palpable uh, if they're not in the scrotum, um, but it's uh, it's an uncommon thing. But certainly, the the if you don't see your son's testicles in the scrotum over you know a period of time, uh, it's a reason to get checked out. Um, the The biggest thing that we're concerned about is if is bringing it back into the scrotum uh, if it's present, or at least making sure it's there. Um, didn't Bubbles have a... Yeah. Un- our dog, Bubbles, the white one, had an undescended <laughs> testicle, yeah. just so you know. And so what did they do with it? Well, they... You don't oh, yeah, that? he got... He got um, when, when, our, when our dog got neutered, they, uh, we took him for his first examination before getting neutered, and the vet was, was like, oh, I can only feel one testicle on one side. And uh, then he was like, oh, I, you know, I, we'll, we'll take out the one, but we got to make sure that the other one's not there. And just like for, for humans, the reason you want to make sure it's not there or if it is there to, to remove it um, is because you don't want this undescended testicle sitting where it is. Okay. The scrotum is a normal place for testicles. That's where the, the blood supply is the best. That's where the temperature is best uh, for maturation. Uh, and if you don't have this, the testicle in the scrotum, that can lead to issues with hormone production, sperm production, uh, and there's also a risk of testicular cancer in mm. an undescended testicle. That's what, one of the most common um, sort of risk factors for, for testicular cancer. Um, but for Bubbles, he wanted the vet wanted to do his, his neutering, but then he also wanted to do a laparoscopy, so put a little camera into his belly uh, to be able to find his testicle. And uh, so I remember examining him and uh, I felt it in his groin. I, I told the doctor, I'm like, it's in his groin. And he's like, oh, no, that's a lymph node. I'm like, I do this every day. Like, <laughs> it's his testicle in his groin. So anyway, he got he got neutered. And before, <laughs> luckily, I didn't have to like go in there and make sure he <laughs> found it because he he, he dissected on his groin and he found it. He's like, oh, you were right. I'm like, yeah, I was right. 
So if you guys have pets at home or dogs that you, you're wondering where their testicles are, just, just DM me <laughs> on Instagram. We'll get that sorted out for you. So, okay, last thing was torsion. So the one thing we should talk about for undescended testicles is that, you know, you want to you wanna identify this early. So examination in the newborn period and every examination after that that you have with your primary care physician should be examining to make sure the testicle, the testicles are both in the scrotum. Um, Can they come down and then go back up? It's called retractile testicles. Oh. Yeah. So they're, the, testic, the, the spermatic cord, which has the blood vessels and the, the vas deferens, um, that uh, sort of holds the testicle or, or brings the testicle down. Um, but that has some muscles in it, so that can sort of bring the testicle up and down. So with temperature, with, with stimulation, that can all change the position. Um, but as I said the biggest or the most important thing is making sure that both testicles are in the scrotum for most of the time um, in their first couple of months of life. Um, typically in the first six months, that's when we're identifying undescended testicles. And there's sort of a prime time for surgical procedures to bring them back inside the scrotum. And that's usually from six to 18 months. Um, and that's just to make to reduce the risk of testicular cancer and also to... Um, maintain hormone production and, and sperm production all right okay last topic is torsion so i hear about this a lot just because when he goes into the hospital i always ask like you know it's not a, it's not a common thing it's not <clears throat> common no but it scares me because i always i asked him what it meant and it just seems like scary so what is that yeah so when you're looking at the testicular anatomy as i said the testicles sort of hang on a cord that's called a spermatic cord, and it's kind of like a soap on a rope. So if you have the soap down at the bottom, and then you have the rope here, but the rope has all the blood supply, so the, the artery, the vein that, that drains the testicle, um, and it's sitting in sort of this, in a bag, basically, inside the scrotum. And usually for younger kids, you know, typically the age group that's affected uh, from you know, young children into their late teens. That's the, the most common. Um, but um, what can happen is because the, the testicle is not sort of fused inside the, the scrotum, um, it can sort of twist on itself. So it can twist and then cut off the blood supply. Usually we identify that on examination as a testicle that's sort of higher riding inside the scrotum. Usually it's significant, it's really painful to touch. Uh, and uh, usually that pain is associated with nausea, vomiting. Um, and uh, it's, it's definitely one of the only, one of the few, you know, urgent emergencies that we have in urology. So if... Let's say I had testicles. If if I had a torsion happen, like is it something where you're like, oh my god, like that just happened, or is it something that can slowly happen and I mean, then all of a sudden you have pain? It can slowly twist, and then as soon as there is an issue with blood supply, that's where you get pain. Okay. So anytime the blood supply is cut off, when when blood supply is cut off, that causes some uh, tissue damage, and that tissue damage causes inflammation, and the inflammation causes your pain. Okay. Right. Um, and if left untreated, you could end up losing the testicle. Exactly. That, that's the biggest issue here is, you know, if there, if you have a torsion and you don't fix it, that's called an orchiopexy, um, then with the blood supply cut off, it's just, it's just like any other organ. If you don't have blood supply, it's going to die. 
Right. Right. Usually, you know, when it when it dies, there's, you know, there's a small risk of infection because it's this dead tissue that's sitting there. But the biggest risk is that the testicle is just going to atrophy or shrink, and then you only have one. Mm. Right. Um, so from a from a standpoint of maintaining um, function, maintaining you know, hormone production, maintaining sperm production, uh, you want to fix it as soon as possible. So usually the window from, you know, first onset of pain to, you know, the latest you want to get them to the OR is about six hours. Uh, but certainly that, that differs. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm pretty conservative. I would, you know, even if it's been 24 hours, I would still take someone to the OR uh, to at least have a look at it. Yeah. And if it's dead, then you just take it out. Mm. Right. Uh, but if it's if it's viable, then you you fix it and put it back in the scrotum and you sort of tack it into the skin in the scrotum. And the, the important thing is also to do it on the other side, too, because if there if it has happened to one, then, you know, there's a higher likelihood of the same thing potentially happening the other side. OK. And that's not like this is the pediatric <clears throat> episode, but that's not specific to kids like that happens to adults as well it can yeah, yeah. i mean it, it's more common in children oh, okay um you know up to like you know late late teens oh. that's the most common age group but i mean i've seen i've seen a six-year-old with torsion okay so it's and i've seen a newborn with torsion so it's you know it, it's not um it can happen at any any age it's just very much more common okay yeah and so typically I ask guests to share resources for parents. And so the resource that you had mentioned was the Canadian Urology Association yeah. and their guidelines. So they are fairly research-based and like scientific, very dry, um, but it's such good information. So I will put the link in the episode notes. And is there anything else that... That you would say, like for resources that we could put in. Uh, so there's also the American Neurology Association. Okay. Um, the Canadian Pediatric Association has some sort of cross guidelines. Okay. Um, but I mean, just you know, seeking attention from your your family doctor. I yeah. Mean, if you have specific. If you have specific questions. Issues. Yeah. Um, you know, don't don't be afraid to ask them. I, I mean, at at the worst, they're going to refer you to someone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're more than happy to see you. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks. Thanks, babe. Darling. This was our first YouTube video. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we both hope that your children sleep tonight. And don't pee the bed. And then that they don't pee the bed.